Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting November 12th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week, we'll go down to the sea in ships, well, boats, very small boats, first in kayaks in Antarctica, then in an autonomous submarine off the Cape Cod coast. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. The Scientific American website features an in-depth report this week on the future of the North and South Poles. Coincidentally, last week I had a chance to talk to veteran journalist John Bowermaster, who has spent a great deal of time in Antarctica. John's a longtime contributor to National Geographic. He recently completed a project called Oceans 8, a video series featuring John traveling around the world a continent at a time, looking at the health of the world's seas and the lives of the people who depend on them. We talked about the series and then concentrated on his most recent kayaking expedition to Antarctica. Half the world's population lives within 50, 60 miles of a coastline, so what happens to the coastlines, what happens to the world's oceans impacts half, half the population. Um, we used kayaks as kind of a lure. The people we met, most of them who are fishermen, boating people, accepted us as brethren, sisters, uh, depending upon the makeup of the team. Uh, and never once, except for one of the trips, never once did they ask us, what are you doing here? Because they all assumed that everybody travels by kayak uh-huh. or travels by boat. Uh, they were a little mystified by what the boats were made out of, why they were these bright colors. And on a couple of occasions, especially in Asia, they wanted to know why we had hair on our legs. That's really interesting. But otherwise, they, they completely uh, accepted us. And it was very helpful, actually, to our reporting because... We were, we assimilated very easily, much more easily if we, than if we'd arrived by land. So you were in fiberglass and they're used to wood, is that what it was? <laughs> we were in plastic or fiberglass and they were in wood or, or woven, uh, bamboo in, in, in the case of Vietnam. But it, it, the project began in 1999. It ended just this past, uh, uh, winter in, in Antarctica. We started in the Aleutian Islands. Next year was Vietnam. The Tuamotus, which big, uh, archipelago of, of atolls in the South Pacific, mm-hmm. north of Tahiti. The Altiplano of South America, which is the driest place on Earth and would seem kind of a futile place to take kayaks, but there are big desert lakes there that we drag the kayaks from one to the next, and it gave us an opportunity to talk about how the planet changes and evolves and what is the driest place on Earth today. hasn't always been the driest place on Earth, sure. and that those high desert lakes were remnants of when the sea used to be there. We saw marine, marine fossils, coral in, in that high desert. Um, just after that, we went to Gabon, where wildlife conservation scientist Michael Fay and I did a big trip around a couple of the new national parks by boat. It's West Africa. Yeah, right on the equator in West Africa. And then Croatia and the Adriatic Sea. You know, it's 1,500 islands there off of Croatia, so it was perfect for us. And the environmental story there was uh, overfishing, uh-huh. incredible overfishing. We thought we were going to be self-sufficient, not have to take much food we just fish and and couldn't nothing to catch and the small family fishermen that we would meet and ask if we could buy some fish were reluctant because they had already committed their if if they were catching anything they already had commitments right um tasmania Mm -hmm. and which was beautiful and wild and a very good environmental story there because they have a very well-managed fishery um and then this past uh winter uh, or antarctic summer uh, november december january we are in uh, antarctica Kayaking through Antarctica is, well, here's the obvious question. How cold were you? <laughs> well, that's, that's the environmental story is that, uh, in many days our concern was less about the cold and more about sunblock. Wow. 
we had a string of two and a half weeks where we saw, you know, if, you, if you're a skier at all, you know what a kind of a spring ski day is. We had weather like that. It was beautiful, big blue skies, temperatures into, not always, but into the 40 degrees Fahrenheit, um, which is not what you think about when you think of Antarctica. Sure. That was then followed by nine days of really torrential rainfall, which again is not what you think about when you think of Antarctica. How long have you been going to Antarctica? Um, actually, I, my first assignment for National Geographic for the Yellow Magazine was in 1989, and I was there in 89-90 for about seven months. Can you just go there now and look around and say, this is very different from what it used to be? Well, we we flew in in 1989 from the tip of Chile onto an ice shelf called Seals Nunatuk, and that ice shelf no longer exists. That's now ocean. So that's a really, that's a first example. I've traveled a lot. I've traveled on both the interior and in the, in the interior, to be quite honest, you don't see much change because it's still high and dry and very cold. But I've traveled a lot along both sides of the Antarctic Peninsula, which is that 600-mile-long kind of peninsula that juts out from the continent. And on both sides of the, of the peninsula, you see dramatic change in the in – the, not just the size of the glaciers as they come down to the sea, but the ice shelves that used to kind of protect them from the sea, which are increasingly breaking off and moving out uh, – more and more and more. I mean, the thing about Antarctica that that is amazing is that it doubles in size every winter because mm-hmm. the sea around it freezes. Seven million square miles of ice freezes around the continent. Um, and you never know from year to year how it's going to change. Most of that ice, most of that seven million square miles doesn't really recede that much. Um, but, but along the peninsula, it all breaks off and blows out. And that's what creates the big icebergs that we're seeing. Tell me about the penguins. Some interesting things going on there because of the changes in the climate. Well, as we traveled down the the western side of the peninsula, we stopped at several science bases. American base at Palmer, the Ukrainian base at Vernadsky. Uh, we met Brits and Russians who worked at, had been working down there for a decade. And each one of them would take us out and show us a glacier. And they'd say, well, look at that glacier over there. Look at that new land, that new island over there, that new land bridge. They said, 10 years ago, that didn't exist. That's because that glacier over there is receded by 30, 40, 50, 100 feet. But to us, who hadn't seen it before, it still looked like a hell of a lot of ice. You know, that's the thing about Antarctica is we talk about its ice disappearing. But when you're sitting there, especially at sea level in a kayak, it looks like Alaska piled on top of Alaska piled on top of another Alaska. And it's not that I doubted these scientists. I'm sure they're telling us absolutely the, the truth. But when you're seeing it for the first time, it, it's kind of hard to register. But as we moved down the coastline, we also started – we would go onto these islands which were filled with young penguin chicks. Penguins are all kind of born in November. They leave the nest first week of February or so. When we were seeing them in January, they were still covered by down. And this was during that kind of torrential rain period that we saw. And as a result, these penguin chicks, which are a couple months old, covered in down, are getting soaked by cold rain during the day. And then at nighttime, the temperature drops down into the teens, and they're freezing and dying. And for us, that was a much more powerful example of climate change impacting wildlife than anything we'd seen previously, and gave us an image of climate change that the receding glaciers didn't. Penguins are freezing because it's getting too warm. The penguins are not built for cold. They're not built for rain. They're built for cold. Uh, but the parents of these chicks are wisening up, and season by season, more of them are mo- moving further south down along the peninsula where it's colder, where it's not getting as warm, where it's not raining. And they're catching on. But in the interim, thousands of chicks are, are, are dying. It's really amazing. Two things we see impacting Antarctica are... Uh, is climate change. I mean, the peninsula is warmed by 
an average of five to nine degrees in the last 50 years, more than anywhere else on the planet. Fahrenheit. 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 So, I mean, it it is warming. There's absolutely no question. No one would dispute that. Parts of Antarctica are getting colder. Peninsula is, is warming. So you see impacts of that everywhere. The other thing that we're seeing kind of related is this boom in tourism. Absolute boom. Each year sets new records for how many people are going and visiting the peninsula of Antarctica. Last year, 40,000 people arrived by cruise boats. So is that good or bad? Is it, you know, the, the good it's or both. bad is, is tough. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, if from, if you operate from kind of a high plane, you say the more people who visit, the more people return as ambassadors for Antarctica and ambassadors for preserving this, this very special place. The downside, of course, is that just statistically, the more people who visit, the more, uh, bigger footprint they leave, the more of an impact they have. By pure uh, happenstance, I was there last November, one day after Thanksgiving, when the first tourist ship uh, sank off the coast of the peninsula. Mm-hmm. I was on another ship, and we were the first to arrive and witness the, the, both the, the passengers afloat in their lifeboats and then the sinking of this 40-year-old uh, ship, which gave everyone caution because, of course, it suggests that, you know, there but for the grace of someone, go go I. Um, the environmental impact is is potentially huge. I mean, that was a... A boat uh, carrying uh, diesel fuel, about five tons of oil and lubricants, 154 passengers. Uh, for the moment, the the beaches of Antarctica are the most pristine I've seen on the planet. But that could change. The more boats that go down, the more people who arrive with plastic bags and odds and ends of paraphernalia that blows off a boat or gets left behind on the shore. That will change things. The other thing is that that was a that was the explorer that sank with 154 passengers. But last season, the Star Princess, which is a Cruise boat that carries 3,107 passengers and another 1,500 crew went to Antarctica. Now imagine it hits ice one day. You know, for us to help save or rescue 154 people was doable. Mm-hmm. To rescue 5,000 people, no. impossible. So just, and this is not to be totally gloom and doom, it's just by, by pure statistics, eventually, you know, more and more accidents will happen just as more and more people go. They anticipate within a couple of years, 80,000 people could visit by cruise boats. So the potential environmental impact on Antarctica is, is huge. Are there any kind of rules that have been put in place to govern the activity of tourists while they're on Antarctica? Well, there is, you know, the international treaty that governs Antarctica references tourism very, very briefly. When it was written in 1959, they never anticipated it. Right, that people would be that crazy. And no idea. And they've never really properly gone back to amend the treaty to address it. So the only thing that exists is that uh, any tour operator who goes to Antarctica is supposed to join a voluntary group called the International Association of Antarctica Tour Operators. Most of them do. Most of them follow the voluntary guidelines, which relate to how many people you can land on shore at one time, which is 50. Uh, you know, how many boats can be in, in what vicinity at, at any one time. Mm-hmm. But there are several of the big companies who actually have, have refused to join. They don't want to go by any any rules, no matter whether they're voluntary or not. Mm-hmm. And the tricky thing in Antarctica is there's no Navy, there's no police, there's no Coast Guard, there's no enforcement. So even if you're disobeying these voluntary rules, uh, there's no one there to, to monitor you. By definition, you're in international waters, no matter how close to the land you are. That's right. I mean... The only way you could outlaw tourism in Antarctica would be to rewrite the law of the sea, which no one's going to do. So right. you, you can't stop tourism down there. All you can do is try, try, try to set up some sort of guideline and, and hope that people will follow them. And most of the tour operators do. Most of the operators are pretty um, respectful. 
That said, even the most respectful companies go down there, and you can't help but have an impact. I mean, it's just impossible. You take a big boat down there with, you know, several hundred people on it, you're going to leave something behind. I mean, the, the good thing for Antarctica is that it's it's huge. I mean, even without that 7 million square miles of frozen sea ice around it, uh, you could fit the United States in Antarctica very easily, including Alaska. Wow. So what tourism is impacting is a, and, and actually what climate change is impacting is a relatively very small piece of that peninsula. But, you know, the impact on the peninsula, if, if all that ice melts, uh, could be, could be huge. I mean, they talk about sea levels rising, you know, by inches and feet. You know, if that, if that, uh, ice along the peninsula melts, that, that will add to the, to the volume of the sea very quickly. No, the smart scientists that we met along the peninsula all say that uh, there is this critical point. You know, if you live in the United States, if you live in the North, we all know that there is there comes a spring day when you've got a bunch of snow out on your back porch, and it'll rain or the sun will come out, and that snow will disappear in a day. And that's what scientists are concerned about in Antarctica, is that there is this critical point where, yes, it looks like there's still a lot of ice, but as, t- as temperatures continue to rise and as there's more and more rain, there will be a point where a lot of that ice will disappear quickly. When you're in Antarctica, you're in Antarctica in a kayak. What do you eat? How do you bring enough provisions with you to make sure that because you, you're burning a lot of calories kayaking around in cold weather? You've got both things going on: your energy expenditure for the exercise you're doing, plus just keeping your body heat up. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Uh, fatty stuff, a lot of chocolate. Mm-hmm. I don't do it, but some will eat uh, raw sticks of butter filled with fat. Yeah, well, you burn kind of in that five to 6,000 calorie range. The thing that we've found over the years that works best is smoked fish because it's very nutritional and it lasts. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, lots of nuts and chocolate and things. In Antarctica, of course, the tricky things with those foods is you have to make sure they don't freeze mm-hmm. because you don't want to be breaking your teeth, biting into frozen uh, nuts. <laughs> Stick of butter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, but that said, you know, to be honest, we were down there for five to six weeks and, uh, most of us had just enough spare that we could afford five or six weeks on a, on a kind of lean diet. I would imagine there must be some kind of an impact that you feel when you're doing something like this. Well, this is the beauty of traveling in place like that by kayak is that you're separated from this cold ocean, 29 degrees Fahrenheit by a millimeter of carbon fiber. Kevlar, and you're right there. But as a result, you experience this place from a very unique perspective, not so much unlike a seal or a whale, I guess. I remember one day in January, we kayaked through this uh, channel called the La Mer. The La Mer Channel is one of the most beautiful places along the peninsula that's very narrow with tall glaciers on either side. And it happened to be one of those beautiful blue sky days. And I can remember thinking over and over during that day, you know, how lucky we were to, to be there because I've all, I've been in that channel before and often it's big and blowy and gusty and windy because you're pushing all this ice and wind through this narrow, narrow slot. Antarctica is one of these places that truly gets in your blood. You know, I went there first in 1989, 90. I've been back many times since I leave in three weeks for another seven week stint. Um, I feel very fortunate to be able to go to this place, despite the fact that the numbers of tourists are visiting, the numbers of people who have repeat visits to Antarctica is, is pretty rare. And it, it's 20 years of watching Antarctica it has given me some insight into how the place is changing and reminds me even more powerfully how it's a place like 
others on the planet, but, but it is different in that it's a place that's not monitored. There are very few people living there. It's a place that demands observation. You know, we have to stay focused. But as you can, as you can imagine in this day of budget cutting in countries around the world, Antarctic science programs are being sliced. So there's this concern that it, it's a place also that could be kind of forgotten in the not so distant future. And that would be a tragedy because as that ice melts, and if it can, especially if it continues to melt at the rate it is now, that it will impact all of the world's oceans. Now you said uh, it, Antarctica really gets in your blood. You know about the ice fish in Antarctica, where it literally has ice in its blood. They have evolved to not really have blood anymore. Their vein, they still have veins and hearts that pump fluid through blood vessels. What's going through there is just ice water because the, um, the colder water is kind of super saturated with oxygen. So they don't need the specialized molecular structures to carry the oxygen anymore. And they're in deep trouble, all these species of ice fish, because as the water warms up, it does not carry enough oxygen for them anymore. So, you know, the, the gene sequences for hemoglobin fossilized because there was no selection pressure to keep them around and uh you know like your like your freezing penguins they could be victimized by by the warm up well the other the other marine life that's being impacted by the warming temperatures are the krill of course which are the basis of food supply in antarctica for all the marine animals but the warming seas are are killing them off as well so uh you know i, I think in in the big in the big picture, I think Antarctica is a place that, that demands attention. Unfortunately, I think the attention it's going to get in the coming decades is not necessarily what we hope for it. And that is because, especially along the peninsula, as that ice melts, it makes that continent much more accessible to exploitation. Oil drilling, precious mineral searches, which is subtly going on now. In the 1930s and 1940s, when countries were racing to Antarctica to claim their own pie slice, Hitler even sent uh, planes down during the height of World War II so that Germany didn't miss out and so that Germany would get a claim as well. They marked off its pie slice with uh, swastikas, swastika-marked sandbags. The international treaty that governs the continent was signed in 1959, ostensibly eliminating those nationalistic claims. But, of course, no one really took them off their books. And as a result, all those countries still regard those pie slices as theirs in case the treaty should ever fall apart. Last year, last November, the UK claimed one quarter of Antarctica as its own. A new claim, despite mm-hmm. the treaty. Totally outside of the, the reasons and limits of the treaty. And when asked why, they basically said, well, you know, someday Antarctica is going to change. We want to be on the books for having said that that's wow. ours. And so the same kind of fights you're seeing now in the, in the Arctic over who owns what are going to happen in Antarctica sooner than we expect. Especially if it becomes easier to, uh, to prospect for gold or to drill for oil. Then you're going to see all those treaties of uh, cooperation pretty much go out the frozen window. Well, that's right, because all it takes to recuse yourself from the treaty is a, a letter. You know, I quit. We're out. Basically, a little notary stamp, and, and that's it. And so there will be no recrimination other than maybe in the court of public opinion, but that that's it. Um, certainly, there's oil there. When you think about where Antarctica came from off the, the tips of South Africa and South America, there's oil. Up until now, it's been too treacherous. It's still too treacherous to put oil rigs in around there because you have giant icebergs 10 miles wide breaking off which would easily take out an oil rig but as that ice disappears 
That will change. For more on John Bowermaster and his series Ocean 8, go to his website, johnbowermaster.com. John is spelled J-O-N, Bowermaster, B-O-W-E-R-M-A-S-T-E-R. And to check out the Scientific American in-depth report on the future of the polls, just go to the SIAM website, www.siam.com. Cynthia Graber is a frequent contributor to the daily SIAM podcast, 60 Second Science. She recently joined MIT researchers on a boat off the coast of Cape Cod, where they were putting a new autonomous underwater vehicle through its paces. That's the Odyssey 4 being hoisted overboard. It's bright yellow, about six feet long and four feet tall. It looks, not surprisingly, a little like a big pudgy fish. Justin Eskison designed the software that controls the Odyssey. I'm going to send it on a mission. It's just going to go underwater and then anchor a little away from us, roughly southeast. So, Justin just sent the Odyssey underwater for a couple of minutes and told it to come up at a specific location and hold on to its position. It's fighting currents to stay in place. Yeah, so you can see it's right now, right over there. I can see it just barely as it pokes its yellow head out of the water. This is the latest generation of MIT's Autonomous Underwater Vehicles, or AUVs. There are, of course, already AUVs out there. They generally fall into two categories. Some can speed through the water and take images as they go. Some can hover in place. Hovering's useful for, say, performing maintenance work on ships. Put all that together, and you have a vehicle that can speed down, hang out, take a bunch of images, even interact with its environment. The Odyssey 4 can do all this to about 6,000 meters down, some three and three-quarter miles below the surface, which means that this machine is well-suited to its main goal, the study of deep-sea coral. Franz Hover is the principal investigator. It's a, it's a Garden of Eden on the seafloor when you find one of these outcrops of, of coral. So you, you may find new chemicals, you may find new fish. It's very exciting. It's like finding new forests. Um, they are uh, repositories of climate data. The fossils have isotopic, uh, shall we say, signatures. If you can gather these fossils and get them back to your lab and do some analysis on them, you can figure out what climate was like. Finding the coral in the first place is hard enough. What comes next is even more difficult. What we're doing with this vehicle is we're we're seriously tackling the manipulation problem. It's built for that. It's what we're supposed to do with the corals. It's what offshore industry wants us to do. It's to go autonomously, pick things up, put them down, interact with structures. And that, uh, that poses all these new problems. Such as, how do you design a deep water vehicle that can, without human eyes telling it specifically what to do, navigate deep underwater, recognize coral, reach out, take a small sample, and speed back up to the surface. This involves imaging, navigation, communication systems. Today, these types of missions are mostly done by machines tethered to a boat and controlled by humans. Autonomous missions potentially have much more flexibility. The solutions for the Odyssey 4 are still in the design phase. Coral research was the impetus for this machine. That was was the proposal that got it built. Its its second life now is the uh, offshore oil and gas manipulation inspection and manipulation. Chevron's investing in the vehicle as well for offshore oil work. After an hour or so out on the water, MIT researchers wrestle the Odyssey 4 back on board. 
In the lab, the team is working on the recognition, navigation, and manipulation systems. Next summer, they're hoping to check out the ocean floor off the coast of Long Beach, California, in search of deep-sea coral. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Cynthia Graber. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, after a law was enacted in Florida requiring vision tests for senior drivers, the death rate among senior drivers actually went up. Story two, the Phoenix Mars lander has ceased communicating with Earth after five months on the red planet. Story three, study subjects who washed down a placebo pill with a strange-tasting drink got more of a placebo effect than those who took the pill with plain water. And story four, MIT researchers have invented material that can repel oil and water. Time's up. Story four is true. MIT researchers have invented a material that seems to be able to repel hydrophilic and hydrophobic liquids. How you hold on to it if you're sweating, I don't know. The so-called omniphobic surface was reported in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. You can read more about how they did it in the article called How to Make Materials Everything Proof at the Scientific American website. And story three is true. A strange-tasting drink with no active ingredients nevertheless resulted in a stronger placebo effect. Study subjects took a drug or placebo pill with either water or the odd drink, and the ones who got the placebo with the strange liquid had almost as strong a response as did the subjects who got the real drug, a far bigger placebo response than the water drinkers got. For more, check out the November 10th edition of the Scientific American Mind and Brain podcast, 60 Second Psych. And story two is true. The Phoenix Mars lander has gone quiet. Mission engineers got their last message from the lander on November 2nd. It was designed for three months, but lasted five. The batteries have pretty much drained and are unable to recharge due to the seasonal decline in sunlight on Mars. The analysis of all the data that the lander sent back, however, is just beginning. All of which means that story one about the death rate going up among senior drivers in Florida after they had their vision tested is totally bogus. In fact, the death rate among drivers over 80 has dropped in Florida since the state passed a law requiring vision tests for drivers over 80. Shocking, ain't it? Turns out you have a better chance of surviving behind the wheel if you can see. No data on whether fewer pedestrians are plowed into, but as a frequent walker and cyclist in Florida, I'm all for the drivers being able to actually see me. The research appeared in the archives of ophthalmology. Well, that's it for this edition of Scientific American Science Talk. Visit Siam.com for all the latest science news, in-depth reports like the future of the polls, and slideshows. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 